0: I've chosen a passage of scripture from Mark chapter 10. And if if, uh, if you have your Bibles, I would just invite you to open it. Not so much to follow along because it's going to be on the screen for you as you can see. But I want you to get some context for what's going on in Mark's narrative. Okay, We're going to pick up the reading at verse 46 in just a minute. But I want you to just scan and see what's going on just prior to that. And then look ahead to the start of chapter 11. This is about 10 days away from the end of Jesus' public ministry. When you get to the end of chapter 10 in Mark, Mark is ready to send him into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And so this is this event we're going to talk about this morning is actually the last healing miracle that Mark records in his gospel it's not the last miracle because obviously Mark records the resurrection and that's the greatest of miracles Okay, but this is the last healing miracle in Mark's gospel and if if you remember some of the other stories remember when Jesus was asked and who is my neighbor he talked about a place in geography called the, the Jericho Road the guy we're going to look at today is right adjacent to the Jericho Road, the road that ran from Jericho down to Jerusalem. So I want you to get a bit of a picture in your mind. Imagine in your mind a large crowd of people. Now for some of you that's ten. For others of you it's a thousand or more. Okay, And we'll talk about two or three different crowds this morning when we get that far along. But I want you to understand that, that there's a large group of people traveling with Jesus and his disciples. And everybody's traveling on foot. They're just moving down the road. So let's, let's, look at our, let's look at our scripture. You can follow on the screen or you can follow in your Bibles. But this event happens right after the request of James and John. They want to know if they can set one on his right and one on his left when he gets into his kingdom. And Jesus totally downplays that whole request and says, That's not for me to decide. So let's let's look now at where we're at for today. Then they came to Jericho. If you're allowed to circle in your Bible, circle the word then. Okay? As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus. That is, the son of Timaeus was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man. Cheer up! On your feet! He's calling you! Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. By the way, circle the word go. That's going to be important later on. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. In this story we have the importance of just one man. So let's set the stage and let's begin to unpack this amazing miracle that reveals an answer to a courageous but very specific prayer. And by the way, at the end of the message today, I'm going to ask three things of you, just so you know, so you're not surprised at the end. I'm going to ask you to choose a verse of scripture. I'm going to ask you to identify a place to pray. And I'm going to ask you to be very specific about one prayer request. So at the end, we're going to go one, two, three. Okay? There are a number of significant characters in this story. You can identify him. I think the, the most primary character here would be Jesus. Especially when we're in church and we're doing a sermon, Jesus is always the main character if he's mentioned at all. And this is true here. He's the, he's the notable rabbi. These people are following him. They're wanting to learn from him. He's been the healer. He's been the provider. He's been an outstanding public speaker. People have said nobody has ever taught us in the way like he teaches us. So Jesus is a key character. Other key characters in this story are the twelve disciples. As I've mentioned, it's now been about three years that these guys have been with Jesus for three solid years and they know that when, when Jesus moves, they move. When Jesus takes time out, they take time out. And so they are carefully and faithfully following him along. They have watched him do all kinds of miracles. And as I mentioned earlier, another key ingredient, another key part of this group is the large crowd of people. They've been following Jesus from place to place. And every time he does something outlandish, miraculous, out of the ordinary, more people gather in. Some no doubt drop off, they have to go back home and take care of things, but Jesus' reputation keeps going ahead of him. And so people come out of the communities and the villages to see him, and the crowd just keeps growing. That's why when he gets to Jerusalem, there's such a large crowd of people. And finally, in Mark's gospel, then, we have a blind beggar. Now, you're probably thinking, well, in in two of the other gospels, this account is mentioned, and in one of those, they mention two men. But Mark only records that there was one man. And he gives him a name, and the name is Bartimaeus. Secondly let's consider the place where the spot where the plot of the story thickens it's beside the road it takes place in judea the road that leads from jericho down to jerusalem mark tells us that this significant incident happened just outside of the city as jesus and the multitude were leaving the outskirts of the community Jericho at this time was a popular resort city. Herod the Great had rebuilt it and it was a wonderful tourist and and retreat kind of a destination located in the Judean desert and not very far from a major crossing point on the Jordan River. Jesus had been up on the right side of the Jordan in a place called Perea and had come down realizing now he was needing to go to Jerusalem. So he drops down to this crossing point in the Jordan, which was right across from the city of Jericho. And so as he came across the river, he naturally went into the city. Jesus had numerous times previously forewarned his disciples that major things are about to happen. When I get back to Jerusalem there's going to be a push to make me king. And then that's going to go away and there's going to be a push to destroy me. So major things are about to happen. But with all of this in Jesus' mind and him knowing that this was the right time for him to return to Jerusalem, he does some amazing things along this Jericho road. Through it all, Jesus would remain focused and very determined in his mind and heart moving ever more resolutely towards Jerusalem and to the events that would happen there in the city of Jerusalem. Imagine the dynamics of this large crowd, if you can. People moving step by step with Jesus. Imagine if there were three to 5,000 people out here on your property today and all of a sudden you decided we were going to start walking towards Watford City and we'd just string ourselves out along Highway 23. It'd be pretty dangerous, wouldn't it? I mean, there's... A lot of truck traffic. We'd have to be really careful. But things like that were happening. And just imagine the excitement of being with Jesus. I mean, you've spent time with Jesus, haven't you, in your own quiet time and as you're reading, and you just think, oh, I wish I could have been there. Like, I wish I could have been on the on the Sea of Galilee when he calmed the storm. I wish I'd have been in the boat and, and experienced that. Or I wish I'd have been on the mountain when, when he came down and then he fed the multitude. I wish I could have had some of those fragments in those twelve baskets full that were left over. It would have been fun to be with Jesus. And when he turned those those religious leaders away from the from the temple courtyard when they wanted to stone the woman caught in adultery and Jesus just sent them away one by one. I mean I wish I could have been there to see that forgiveness and grace go over that lady. I mean it was fun to be with Jesus. And that's why the crowd kept growing. Think back to the last time you were in a large crowd. Picture it in your mind. Picture where you were, if you can. I'll give you a couple of illustrations. I was at my six-year-old granddaughter's soccer game yesterday morning on the uh, northeast corner of Rapid City. There were 20 soccer fields, and each field had two games going on with these little kids. Now, for this one six-year-old granddaughter, there were nine of us, excuse me, 11 of us that came to watch her. So just imagine if these if these uh, 40 or 50 teams, if everybody had six or seven people out to watch every player, there were eight people on a team. So imagine the hundreds of people that were there. Now, the way this impacted me is when I got ready to leave, <laughs> I was caught in bumper-to-bumper traffic. Now, that doesn't happen much in Rapid City. Okay, Rapid City's not that big. But to get from the soccer field back to my house, which was 15 miles, it took me quite a while before I could get to the interstate. In July, Rapid City has has an event called Hills Alive. Some of you may have been there. It's an outdoor uh, weekend concert in in Memorial Park, just outside by the the Rushmore Civic Center. And uh, one of our pastors was in charge of lining up pastors to pray. And so on Sunday night of Hills Alive, my job was to walk through the crowd and just pray for people. I wore a sign that said, you know, prayer. So if somebody wanted to, they could come up to me and tap me on the shoulder, and I'd stop and pray with them. Well, I did that with two or three people, but it was interesting just to walk through the crowd and see what some of the people were doing. Some were so engaged in the music, and some were totally disconnected. They were eating watermelon, or they were having some kind of a little lunch or whatever, or some people were playing games, some people were playing Yahtzee and whatever. And then, back in January of last year, I did something really foolish. I went to my eight-year-old grandson's wrestling match. I was over in Sioux Falls, and I found out that in just a few hours, he was going to wrestle in the next community south of Sioux Falls. And we get down there, and there were 900 elementary-age kids registered to wrestle. (laughs) We got there, we got there, my son and I and my grandson got there at 5:30 in the evening. And his last wrestling match was at 10:35. That may, an 8-year-old boy who was used to going to bed at 8:30 at night. Anyway, for the last for the last match at 10:35, enough of the crowd had gone home that I left from about the 20th row or so up in the bleachers and I went down. His mat was down here so I came down here. And it was over here in the corner, so I could watch him really close. And I if you ever been to a to a wrestling match, but they allow the coaches to be in the middle of the mat. There's a little circle in there, and the coach can be right in there coaching. Well, most of these kids had their parents for coaches. Okay, and boys and girls could wrestle. I mean, you, you know, they let either either gender wrestle. And there was this one mom in the next mat over there who had who had a seven or eight year old girl. And she was livid. I mean, she was just screaming about what this daughter of hers should do. Take her out! I mean, take her down! She was just screaming. And I said to myself when I got up, she's only seven or eight. I mean, really? You want her to, you want her to do that? So some of the crowds that we're in are, are really quite beneficial and helpful. Uh, when, when my wife and I are in Rapid City on the weekend, we, we attend church at Fountain Springs. And they have four services, in, in, and then two in another location. So we probably worship with a group of around 500. Now that is a good-sized crowd in my mind, as far as is having a, a worship experience. So we don't know how large this crowd was, but it was large enough that even though the Jericho Road might have been as narrow as this aisle. It was crowded enough that Jesus didn't notice Bartimaeus right away. So, as they approach Bartimaeus, he begins to cry out. And the cry out interrupts the road trip. Now, I drove up yesterday from Rapid City, and there were two or three, maybe four vehicles that were stopped on the side of the road. Didn't look like anybody was in distress. Maybe they were getting something out of the trunk. Maybe they were changing drivers. But nobody had a flat tire and it didn't look like anybody was out of gas. So I just I just kept right on going. And I would imagine that if, if Jesus had, had had a crowd following him for days and weeks and months and maybe even longer than that, he was used to having people saying something. And just imagine... If you're learning from the rabbi, the rabbis taught while they walked. And so you wanted to listen in for what he had to say. But somehow, in the midst of all that commotion and the size of that crowd, Jesus hears someone crying out. Now the people around Bartimaeus tell him to be quiet. Today people would say, they told him to shut up. I don't particularly like that phrase, so I don't use it very often. But they told Bartimaeus to be quiet. But imagine, Mark doesn't tell us, neither does Matthew or Luke, how long Bartimaeus has been blind. But just imagine, if you can, that you've been blind and there for 10 or 15 years, or 5 years, and you somehow get word that Jesus is passing by and you know just a little bit about what Jesus might be capable of doing, would you be quiet if somebody told you to be quiet? I mean, seriously. If you thought this might be an avenue for hope and for help, I've got to tell you, you couldn't keep me quiet. And so, as we read earlier, Jesus stopped, and he says, call call him. Just, Just call him. Now, Jesus was used to seeing beggars. He was used to seeing blind people. Beggars were common in Jesus' day, and they often camped close to where the foot traffic happened because that was their source of income. Jesus would not have been shocked to see a beggar. I'm not shocked in Rapid City to see a street person. I oftentimes walk along Rapid Creek, and many times there are street people sleeping under the bridges and in the culverts next to Rapid Creek. Jesus would have had a very similar reaction to seeing a blind person or a beggar outside of a a city like Jericho. But even in the midst of a crowd, Jesus hears one voice crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now that gets your attention. A couple of you were starting to doze a little bit. I just... (laughs) I just woke you yeah. up. I was on a flight about two years ago. Just about this time, we were flying from Seattle to Anchorage. And there was a young family that got on with a, with a young child. baby. the child needed to be carried. I don't know how old it was. But interestingly enough, when when that baby cried, a lot of us turned around and looked. Like, can you keep that kid quiet? You know, I mean, come on, we're flying, we've got a long flight. But you know, pretty soon, and after the kid had cried for several more minutes, dad got up and started to walk the aisle. And just started to say soft words to this little child. And the kid the kid quit crying, and all of us smiled and relaxed, like, okay, somebody took care of that. Jesus, here's the man, and he says, Bring him here. And then, those that were trying to get him to be quiet said, Hey, cheer up. Cheer up. Get up. Get on your feet. He's calling for you. No, really. Once again, here's a good question for you. If Jesus was calling for you, would you have to be told to cheer up? I mean, maybe. I mean, depending on what the issue is in your life, you might not be 100% sure of what Jesus' reaction is going to be to you. We might self-condemn ourselves more than Jesus ever would. But Jesus calls him, and the guy gets up. Now, did you notice what he did when he, when he got up? He took his coat, his cloak that he'd been using to protect himself, to keep warm, to keep the elements off, his security blanket, whatever it was, some kind of a light cloak, he took and he threw it aside. He didn't even take it with him. You know what that tells me? That Bartimaeus believed when he jumped up that he was going to be healed. I'm not going to need this old coat any longer because Jesus is going to take care of my problem. Now he's still blind. You see, blind people jump very much. I mean, he knew something great was about to happen, didn't he? And he jumps up, gets upon his feet, lets his coat fly off to the side. And he goes to Jesus. And then Jesus asks him a ridiculous question. This this, this question baffles me. Every time I read it, whether I read it in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, it doesn't matter. Jesus looks at Bartimaeus and he says, What do you want me to do for you? Now, imagine going to the ER or urgent care, whatever you have close here. I mean you've just you've just cut off two of your fingers or you've got a or you've got a gaping wound in your in your skull here and you go in and they say so what would you like me to do for you well uh you know now Jesus being the son of god he knew Bartimaeus was blind didn't he he knew everything he knows everything but he says to Bartimaeus what do you want me to do for you Bartimaeus didn't stutter I used to stutter, by the way, quite a bit. But Bartimaeus didn't stutter at all. He just said, Rabbi, I want to see. I want to see. Scripture doesn't say there was any lapse of time. Bartimaeus didn't have to... uh, Can I get back to you in five minutes, Jesus? See, I don't think this whole event took more than five or ten minutes. From the time they came close to where he was till the time that he was called till the time that he was healed, I think five or ten minutes. And Bartimaeus' decision was a split second decision. I'm going to go to the one that I think that can help me, and I have one great need, and my need is that I need to be able to see. I can't even support myself because I can't work, I can't see. I want to see. and Jesus said go your faith has healed you go what did it say next Mark uses the word immediately immediately he was healed and he got up instead of going a different direction he started following Jesus the guy had a great need He had heard about what Jesus could do. He heard that Jesus was coming close. He was coming by. And he was confident that if he got close enough, Jesus could and would help him make a huge difference in his life. And as soon as all that happens, Bartimaeus is already predetermined in his mind, this is somebody I need to follow. Now, Bartimaeus has just been healed and he's following Jesus and you and I are walking along in that crowd what would you say to Bartimaeus half an hour after his healing hey Bartimaeus what's it, what's it like to see for the first time or for first time in many years what do you what do you think of that cloud in the sky up there Bartimaeus what, look at that look at that little child over there have you ever seen such a beautiful face as one as the one that's on that child Bartimaeus, what was it like to be blind for so long? What, what I've, I've never been blind. What, what was that like? What, what did you experience when Jesus said, "Go, you're healed"? Did, did your body tingle? Did did something unusual happen? What, what happened, Bartimaeus? And then I wonder, where was Bartimaeus when they got to Jerusalem? When the crowd started to gather? and to celebrate that Jesus was coming into that city. I wonder if he was one of those that was leading in the the praise and worship and just shouting at the top of his lungs, I owe it all, I owe it all, I owe it all to Jesus. I think there are some lessons we can learn from this brief account. I'm going to skip some things for the convenience of time and for your benefit today. The first of these is that this healing miracle again reveals the compassionate side of Jesus. Tender, loving, kind, forgiving, it reveals the compassionate side of Jesus. Don't ever think that your need or my need is too insignificant or too great. Either way, that Jesus doesn't care about it. Secondly, the healing miracle can teach us that most of the time we should ignore the clamor of the crowd. Very often the clamor of the crowd is wrong. We need to be able to avoid the clamor of the crowd. Third, this healing miracle should give us the assurance to know and remember that Jesus will always hear our cries. He waits for us to cry out to be rescued, to be delivered, to be helped. He hears our cries for healing, for hope, and for wholeness. Okay. Fourth, the healing miracle teaches us to cry out to let our requests be known. And I want to encourage you today to funnel it down to one main thing. Fifth, this healing miracle can provide us with a clear avenue for following Jesus more passionately. The more that we recognize what Jesus does for us in a very personal way, the greater it increases our faith and the greater it increases our passion and our compassion to be more like Jesus to the people around us. And six, the healing miracle can give us both hope and confidence that Jesus will not simply pass us by. Jesus is not swayed by the crowd he heard one blind man cry out for help. So the question is, do you genuinely know what you want or need Jesus to do for you? If I were Jesus, I'm not. I'm like him, but I'm not him. If he were standing here this morning and he were to look at you and say, Pastor Adrian, what do you want me to do for you? Would you have an answer? Is there something that's been so much a part of your heart and life that you really want Jesus to care for that? Maybe it's a person that you've been praying for for years who yet, as far as you know, is still far from God. Jesus definitely cares about that. There may be a loved one in your connection, your family or amongst your friends that's dealing with a very serious illness, as serious as blindness. And you you would like very much for Jesus to do something about that. Maybe it's in your own family. Maybe you've got a strange relationship with one of your adult children or one of your teenagers or one of your siblings. And you really want Jesus to do something For a breakthrough in that relationship. I would just challenge you to make that a very specific request. In the the Sunday School group this morning, we talked about, uh, from Romans chapter 1, about some of the things that are going on, or many of the things that are going on in our culture that are outside of, of biblical living, and to very, very carefully identify... Significant people that maybe can do something about some of those. People in high places with with responsibility and authority. And just ask Jesus to redirect their thinking in their heart so that we can return to more biblical morality. So, as I mentioned when I started, I'd like you to do three things for me and for you. The first one is to claim a particular verse or short passage that will command and challenge you to pray regularly. I have some. Matthew 7, 7 and 8, which says, ask and it, it will be given to you. You, Many of you know that. The other one is Romans 8, 26. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, we do not know how what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes. So even when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit will intercede. Ephesians 6.18 And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests with this in mind. Be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 Pray continually. When you're driving down the road rather than listening to Fox News or your favorite station shut off the noise or the news and pray continually with your eyes open. Thank you. James 5.13 Is any of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. 1 Peter 4.7 The end of all things is near. Therefore be clear minded and self controlled so that you can pray. Secondly, take advantage and place yourself in a position where Jesus will pass by. Do you have a spot like that? Where you go to meet with Jesus? Jesus? I have an old gold recliner that's about 50 years old that sits down in my study area. It's my comfort chair. I have a, a cup of coffee beside it while I sit and pray. But it's it's typically, if I'm going to hear from Jesus, I'm going to be in that spot. Okay? I, I don't know where yours is, but I know where mine is. And I know the time of the day that it is for me when I'm most in tune to what Jesus may be wanting to do. And then third is to just be very specific about your prayer request. Two weeks ago this morning, I was in Pierce, South Dakota, and at 6.30 in the morning, my wife gets a text message from a friend in Rapid City telling us that a prayer that we have been praying for more than 20 years had been answered. A young man who was part of one of the youth groups that I led back in Mitchell, South Dakota, uh... who who is now almost 40, I think he's 39 years old, to be exact. I was going to say almost 40, but I believe he's 39. Two weeks ago this morning, he came back to the Lord. There had been a a group of five or six moms and, and other concerned people who had just prayed every day for this young man for almost 20 years. So some of these things are going to take time, but I share that with you to say that Jesus still answers prayer. And we need to give him the opportunity by being very specific about what we're going to do.